Highly Educated the Podcast is brought to you by Memory Mondays at the Memory Motel in Montauk, New York. All summer long, every Monday starting at 9 p.m., the legendary DJ Chili will be spinning live sets with some killer drink specials. $6 Montauk hard label shots, $11 well drinks, and no entry cover. That's right, no cover in Montauk in the summer. That's where I hang out. That's where I go on the weekends. It's a rager. Memory Motel is that bar that all your favorite service industry workers rage at after a long shift. And it's where everybody goes to have a good time. So come down, catch your favorite personalities behind the bar, and enjoy some good vibes. Check them out on Instagram at The Memory Motel or on Twitter at twitter.com slash memorymondays. Welcome to Highly Educated, the podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman. And tonight in the studio, we have the one and only Dash Wilson, a digital strategist originally from New York City. Dash comes in to teach us the importance of language in our modern society and the emotional awareness surrounding it all. Growing up with feet in and out of the Hamptons, she provides her perspective. A little local uh, knowledge, a little local cut. We're going to keep this short and sweet. So without further ado, welcome, Dash. Hey, hey. How you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Thank you so much for coming in here. Thanks for uh, being a part of this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invite. I am excited. This is, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, so this is cool. When was the last time? It's great that you've done one before. Not a lot of people have. It's great to have somebody in that's actually done one. I've recorded a few. I actually have a podcast coming out for something. It is very much so locally tied to something that's near and dear to my heart, which is education. And out here, I co-founded a nonprofit and we are a student advocacy organization. It's called Black Alumni Alliance National Association. BANA. So it's BANA for short. And we work with different schools through a mentorship program with a few of other legs involved there. So that is something that we have out here that we founded a friend and I from here and then another friend of mine who I live with actually down in D.C. She's my best friend. So the three of us co-founded this organization. I love this. It is the only a true black nonprofit for black and brown students in East Hampton, in the Hamptons. There are other places that are, but it's not the founding. So the foundational structure, we are East Hamptons first. That's great. East Hamptons first. East Hamptons first. You heard it here. Which is really exciting. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and, And explain a little bit about this as well for the people. So... Banna, I started with two of my really great friends, and we all have a shared passion for education and supporting the black student where they are in school, and especially in predominantly white areas, because it is something that is generally missing. And so my bestie, she grew up in uh, Southern Virginia, in a space that's really similar to out here as far as the landscape goes. And she just right. shared with me recently that they too have a Clearwater Beach. So huh. we started yeah. a organization to support students in these spaces and be the voices that they need, the champions that they need, because a lot of times they are 
an afterthought and they're forgotten about because they don't make up the bulk of the community and what that looks like. And Absolutely. so people are always like, are there any black people in the Hamptons? And you're like, yes, no, there's not like a ton, but yes, <laughs> we exist. It's not <laughs> right. There are people every day. There are different cultures out here. And even in the diaspora of black culture out here, there are different cultures out here. You have Dominicans, you have Jamaicans, you have literally so many people. Right. You have natives, you have so many people. There's so much culture here. It's just really not shown in the same way. But there's a very beautiful culture here that does exist. And I think a lot of times people misunderstand and they don't always recognize that those spaces, those students also need love and support. Right. And so, so that's what the organization That's does. what we do. Is is it is it ties come into in, the local community and and helps uplift these students to bring them to where they need to be in terms of Yes, and where, by where holding their passions these, align and holding meetings and holding So holding s schools accountable in what they're doing and how things are being reported to them. So that is really the there are multiple points of the organization, but that is one of the like biggest things is holding these schools accountable. I am big on holding your feet to the fire. Hey, if you took on this responsibility, I'm going to hold you to it. Right. So you said, send your school, send your kids here. We're going to keep them safe. We're going to make sure that they're having a healthy, happy learning environment. And it's not cheap at some of these schools. Right. So with that being said, yeah, I'm I'm coming to clock you. What's up? Right. What are you doing? <laughs> how, so, how are you handling so my babies? How are you handling these kids? So you're essentially like almost an ACLU for <laughs> local community. That is the uh, that's the goal. That's the goal. So we have a few lawyers that are actually already in Bana, and we've got some other steps in play to really get our foundation strong and solid. But we are really excited to make the connection with the community that is so desperately needed. That is so close yet so far it felt like. So it's, you're right. And 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 you don't it's not it's not really talked about or discussed. So it's good to have this forum to kind of lay it out there and say, "Hey, this is what's what's going on in the community." You know, you need to kind of put in the work sometimes and and realize that your community has deep roots that you need to explore and and learn about and understand oh, absolutely there's so many nuances right and, and and it's a thing of you're you're educating yourself right so you're you're what you're doing here is you're educating essentially yeah you're educating and the masses of what is out here of hey this is what's going on in the community this is how it is we need to actually uplift these uh kids in the community because they're not being uh spoken for or um accounted that's for. exactly it Right. It is really about uplifting and enriching children and not just the kids that look like me or that are Afro Latino, Afro Latin and everything in between. Right. There's so much of it is all right because I'm holding the institution accountable. It is less to do with the individual actions and more to do with the institution itself and what kind of environment it fosters. Right. So when a school is learning of uh, racist accusations that take place on their campus, what is their response? How do they respond to those? What is their response to discipline in general? 
what does that look like? What is all of their responses? What do all of their responses to discipline look like? It's a really foundational uh, overview and microscope of studying exactly how they are supporting and missing ways that they can support. So it's not hostile. It is in some ways harsh because it is a true account of what is happening. And that may be heartbreaking because the truth is ugly sometimes. And we can sugarcoat it, but that takes away from it being true and the urgency that we have to have with the truth and how we respond to that truth. Urgency, I think, is the key word there. Urgency is the key word because a lot of these things are life-threatening. You know, I spent time studying various massacres. Yeah, can we and, talk about the roots? So not to not to disband yeah, from Banna and the organization, but to talk about your roots because I think that's very important integrally to what you're doing. How did you get to where you are now, like to what you're doing? Where does where does it all start for you? I mean, you're in the city, you're growing up in the city, you're living that life, and then 13 years old or something in that age, you get pulled out and you have to come out to the Hamptons um, for family scenario, and, and then you end up here. And then this is your upbringing here and then and then you've lived that life out here so how did, how did what was the transition like and, and what was the roots and the upbringing great question so I grew up in Brooklyn first I'm from Brooklyn born and raised and my parents were split when I was a kid and so my dad also lived in Brooklyn and when I was in third grade the end of third grade we moved to Soho and that's where my stepmom, who I call mom, she's also my mom. I have two moms, and she two mom crew, two mom crew, gang gang. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not lesbians, but they're really cool, <laughs> 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 and they do like each other. And yeah. so it's good that they get along. It is. You, we've come a long way as a family, and I'm really proud of us. It, yeah. Growth is a beautiful thing, and it's really wonderful to be able to have the space to do it. Growth is uh, the key to life. Growth and grace. So I am. I like that. Growth and grace. Uh, that's what we live for. So I grew up in Brooklyn and in Soho because my mom still lived in Brooklyn at the time and she still lives in Brooklyn now. So those are my roots. We had our house out here since I was like four. So I've been coming here since I was like four years old and I love the water. It was literally the best thing ever. But it was our summer house. So I never really imagined it as a full-time place. And when I was in 10th grade, when I was 15, <laughs> my mom, who I lived with in Soho, was like, okay, we're just going to go for the summer. And the summer was like, so we're just going to stay a year. And then... <laughs> obviously. And, and then you never left. She went, you know, she ended up staying. So we had this really wonderful apartment in Soho and my, it was close to my mom's office. She is a really awesome producer. She is killer. She does event production and corporate meetings and experiential activations and all this other cool stuff. Right. She bought out here, I believe, in 1996. And so I I loved it. It was really great. That was a good time to buy, too. It was still cheap. Oh, it was like perfect time. So yeah. she bought in Clearwater. And then the summer of 2007, we ended up staying full time. So I went to East Hampton for a hot second. 
all the way until uh, November of 2007. And, and this then, is high school. You're, this you're is high like, school. You're a teenager. I was point. 15 years old. Right. And yeah. oh my gosh, a 15 year old from New York City. You were a 15 year old from New York City moving out <laughs> here and you, you didn't know anybody really or have any real kind of base to so, your friend group. I sort of knew people because on my street, there's this awesome Venezuelan family and I adore them. They're so sweet. So they were on my street and they were always really warm and welcoming. So I spent time with them and that was actually who I spent a lot of time with in the beginning as well. And then I made friends. I made friends pretty early on. In the and, high school, and, and you because said you lived in Clearwater. This is Springs, the hamlet of yes, the Hamptons. Like, that's very low key, real, um, real local <laughs> families live here, guys. This is where I'm from. This is this is a place that the real deal. You know, residents live here of the town. The this quiet is where, part, right? This is the quiet part. There's no when they say the Hamptons, like this there's is no not Main the frills, not there's the frills, no stores the true here. Chills. You know, there's a few stores. I don't want to shit on the stores that are here, but like there's a, a very small amount of stores, a couple of restaurants. Um, you know, everything you really want to do or need is is 10 minutes away in town. So you don't really, Springs is the quieter part of, of the Hamlet of the Hamptons. So I just want to be clear on that location-wise. Yes. So Sorry. we have our place in Springs and it was so different from Soho. So I grew up in Soho on West Broadway between Prince and Springs. So literally in the heart of Soho. Do you like the sound of fire engines? I did. I honestly <laughs> really did. It was comforting for me. And it used to scare my mom. Actually, it's really funny you made that joke. Because my mom used to say, you know, it petrifies me that you sleep through these parades of fire trucks. Yep. I don't understand how yep. you're still asleep. And I'm like, well, because... My Soho body registered the artery of of Manhattan, so you, you, you everything's flowing through Soho. My I body like. registered that you know it wasn't an imminent threat. It was outside, and it wasn't for this building. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna stay asleep. Thanks. <laughs> uh, wake me up at one thirty. Yeah. I've been up all night, and I need some rest. Mm. I was always like a night owl as a kid. So that was the other thing of being out here. So I'll totally share. It's really nerdy, but when I first moved out here, part of the reason I hated it so much is because. I'm from the city and it's so quiet that it literally scared me. I felt like I was going to get murdered in Springs and no one was going to hear me because there were like three full-time families on my block. <laughs> They're like In reality, it's the exact opposite. Like it's the safest place to live per yeah, capita on planet Earth. Nothing dangerous is going to happen to me in no. Springs, Clearwater Beach at all. But growing up where I grew up was more comforting for me so right because that was that was home so when I first came here it was really it was funny because I spent summers here so when I say summers I mean I went to the YMCA day camp in the summertime out here as a kid I right. went to bowling camp at the bowling alley out here like old school shout out to East Hampton okay Bowl. the original establishment the, I wasn't uh completely fish out of water, so to speak, when it came to making friends out here. Right. I had another friend of mine who I think you know, Rachel Fisher. Yeah. She is, so we went Hello to- photographer, very talented photographer. So she and I are friends from fourth grade. We've known each other since fourth grade and her parents bought a house out here and I said, I was like, oh, it's really close to us and our parents didn't believe us and I was like, yes, it is. It's very close. Yeah. It's five minutes away from my house. <laughs> and so- Rachel and I 
were here every summer together virtually. And so she was really friendly and she had friends out here. So she introduced me to her friends out here. Oh, so she was your local connection at first. The irony that my other city friend (laughs) had more friends out here. So it was nice. And I was able to have a few friends, but the honestly biggest thing that was the hardest was the transition of I'm from the city and local kids are not friendly (laughs) when you're from the city. (laughs) Look, I get it. I totally get it. hundred percent understand. So I'm not mad at you, but like, damn, you can't call me a city five minutes into it. And then you're like, so where are you from? Well, you moved in the bulk of it too. I mean, let's, let's put a time frame here, guys. We're talking about you moved here in like 2008 financial crash era. You moved here in a time where big money was the enemy in the city and the city life <laughs> and Manhattanites. That was like, we fuck had you. Just <laughs> ruined <laughs> yeah, it was like, you ruined our whole country. You ruined New York city person. Like that was like probably the worst oh my gosh. time it was, to it move was out rough. here. Right. It like, was rough. Right. In terms of like landscape of <laughs> land, you know, it was not a welcoming welcome. And like you said, you did, you, you went to East Hampton at first and then, yeah. and, and, and you, you kind of had your neighbors and people that you knew, but you said it was it was rough because locals are they can beat up on the people that aren't from here pretty easily and I think nowadays it's easier to not do it it's it's easily more identifiable now like you can tell who really is out of place and who isn't from here because you could they stick out oh they more, stick out like know? a sore thumb it's, it like doesn't thumb. they it's stick like out like 15 a sore years thumb. ago where it's like families from Nassau County fishermen's and 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 firemen and shit coming out for the weekend or whatever it's well, it's the Jersey Shore now, so like they stick right. out like a sore thumb. Exactly. It's a lot more reckless now in terms of who comes out here and what the party scene is and what everything has evolved to. So I think it's different now in oh, terms yeah. of identifying groups of people that are not from here. But oh, absolutely. in your day, it's like still, you're the new person from Manhattan coming out here and you're in this new school, new environment. And you're right. Local kids are definitely not the nicest to people that are not from here. We're definitely, no. a, like you said, I think it all ties into your theory of preservationist. It is. It's completely preservationist culture and I respect it. So there are things that I recognize that that was the case, but that does not mean that I had negative experiences with kids. This was my observation of my interactions with the kids. Right. But I honestly can't tell you a single person that I have ill feelings or anything like that about because it just was never that. It was always very like, okay, you don't know much about the city, but what you know is the annoying people that come here and ruin everything. And honestly, I don't like them either. So yeah, fuck them. <laughs> fuck those cities. Oh, where am I from? So uh, you, I live so in you quickly assimilated to the local culture, I guess you could say. I wouldn't say assimilated, but I respected it. You know, I I understood the culture and I didn't feel like it was a threat to me truly because to be honest, I wasn't interested in it. Like I was from, I'm from New York city. So I got my ass on the jitney and got my ass on on that train as often as I could back to the city to hang out with your friends. That was my whole family lives there. So out here, it's really just my mom and I. Whereas in the city, I lived really close to my family. I lived really close to my friends. So I was able to see them way more. And I lived like in the central 
of all of the things. So everyone came to my house. I had friends over all the time. I had my cousins over. I had like family friends over or I went to family friends house, vice versa. So it was really different as far as being here full time. And I wasn't really ready to accept it. So I just hopped on the train, hopped on the train, hopped on the jitney. So you're saying for the first couple years of you being out here, it was you kind of being transient to the city and kind of being oh, yeah. there and going there all the time on weekends just to kind of get out of here. Cause you didn't oh, yeah. really feel like you connected with the community here. I didn't feel at the time. Yes. I never, at the time I hadn't felt like I belonged out here. I felt very much so like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? And, and why was that? Was it, that, what was that rooted in? It had to do with not, and um, honestly, this is a little bit deeper, but that's okay. So my dad had passed away and a lot of it had to do with the acceptance of my dad passing away. He had passed right. away the end of my sixth grade year. I was 12 when he passed away. So three years prior to us moving out here full time. And I was still navigating what that space was and then trying to figure out what that grief looked like for me. And mm then I was snatched away from all my friends and everything that I knew. So I had a really hard time really existing here because it was so quiet and I wasn't ready to sit with myself as a 15 year old. I wasn't ready. I needed the noise to keep you distracted from the problems you were having. And it was, it was already natural to my life because of New York city. It is, I grew up around chaos I have a a very uh, strange dynamic in my family in terms of the way that my parents engaged with one another, the way that my mom, my biological mom and I engaged. We I didn't get along with her always. That's a relationship that has blossomed into a really beautiful space that I'm really grateful for, but it mm. wasn't always this way. So on top of having built all this stuff with my dad and all this grief that I was going through, I was also experiencing a struggle in the relationship that I had with my biological mom. I'm a teenager and also going through struggles with my stepmom and my second mom. So it was really difficult to appreciate the stillness that this place offers you when you're not ready to Mm. accept it. It is very hard to live here and to be here in a sober state of mind, in a space of appreciation rather than despair. Because that quiet, quiet stillness can be so scary when you don't know what's next. When you don't know how to harness that silence. And you don't. Yeah. And you don't as a 15 year old. You don't as a kid. You're learning to. You never appreciate it when you're younger. Oh, gosh, no. And it wasn't, I would say, I did not appreciate living here full time until I moved back in 2018. Until a few years ago. A few years ago. Because I, oh, when I left, I left. I was like, get me honestly laughed at with the kids from out here where they're like, city I'm like, okay. And senior year, you're running as far away from here as you possibly can. And now you're a New York City girl. Now you're a New York City guy. Isn't that funny Look how at it works? You. Like a lot of the people kind of like town, it, huh? You either end up in a few places. <laughs> if you leave here, you end up so far away that you can't even imagine. You end up either uh, in the city or you end up somewhere in Florida. 
try to get out of here and get away with more. That's all that it is. It's experience. It's, more more. it's more opportunity for things. At the end of the day, we love this town. It was built on a certain set of systems and values and, and labor and principles, but now it has shifted. You know, you have to come to the realization that while we love the Hamptons and we love East Hampton and I'm a local and I'm from here and I love this town, you need a lot of capital, which <laughs> no one has. And that's the difference. The Hamptons, you need a lot of capital. I can go to New Hampshire and start a business tomorrow. So when you want to start a business here and you want to do all these things, and you have all these ideas, you are not in that pool that can afford to do those things. So you look back on it and you're like, shit, this town has all the opportunity, but how much is actually things that I can tap into at this moment? In reality, the opportunity is there, yes, but do yes. you have the capital? And it's, I think, a step further than the capital. We touched on it a little bit earlier today. It has to do with the word of mouth. It has to do with, do people like you? Do you have a good local name? Have you been doing things in your community as a local for long enough to get local support? Because if you can get local support here, you can do it all. That's really the key to understanding this space. A lot of the reasons that businesses That's fail. How Goldbergs do. It's exactly how Goldbergs has done it. But it's also a really big lesson that I laugh at time and time again when we see these big brand names come in and they attempt to have year-round presence the first thing they misunderstand is the target market. They have no idea who lives out here. They do not fully understand the year-round East End resident. In it's laughable how far they are. Well, from they think they don't need the it. Truth. That's the problem. And it's not even that they think they don't need it. No, they think that the people who were here for the summer are just like the people who were here year-round, and that is the first mistake. Then the next one is finding out that they're not the same person and going, well, it's fine because we can rely but on this But how do they group. not just pull the same median income number? It's beyond your median income. It has to do with your spend. When do people spend money? How much are they spending? And what are they spending it on? Because I can tell you out here, you know what you can't do out here for the low? Eat. You cannot eat here for cheap. I don't care where you're going. You cannot eat here for cheap. One stop. That's not cheap. <laughs> so when I say cheap eats, I am mostly speaking about, this goes back to preservationist culture. It's really great. You don't have fast food out here. We do not have fast food here. Right. So. Or when casual you, fast for that matter. Nothing. Like not even no, a no, no, no. There's just, there's no, no, there's no fast food. Right. Not, yeah. not casual. Fa there's right. no fast food. Right, right. Nothing. It is on purpose. Right. And that is the part of preservationist culture of what makes this place so beautiful and what makes it so special. You care about what goes into the body of the people that live in the community. And right. if these places that are coming in first learned about who lives there, they would know how to market better to them. And exactly. they would know what kind of stores would perform better in these places. Right. So what I'm saying is a step further than just oh, there's a bunch of rich people that go there. It is who lives there because I can tell you we spend a lot of money on food. Right. And it's not always a frills thing. I am notoriously known to indulge when it comes to a meal. But just in general, when you look at the layout of this place, people find a way to buy cheap meals by having, you know, one of their 
coworkers' wives is making meals. So they buy meals within their community and that's for the low. And that is an actual easier attainable thing than going to, it sounds wild, but like going to the Chinese restaurant or even going, because you can only go to these places so much. And again, how many Chinese restaurants are there out here? Right. Like you said, the cheaper eats are not, you can't They're do far it every and day in between. all the time. Yeah. And there's only a couple of them. So it's, it's not, not, right. It's not all the time. You have that so many times. Right? So then you're stuck with, okay, what's next? Then it's not cheap to eat at any of the restaurants out here. Done. I don't care what restaurant right. you're going. John Papa's is not cheap. And I love John Papa's. It's my favorite restaurant. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's not, it's but it's cheap. not cheap. Right. You're so right. there's this idea, I think, that they misunderstand the community. And that's something that a lot of places, outsiders struggle with when it comes to coming to the Hamptons and appreciating what's here for what's here. Because they're coming for some frills and some made up scenario that actually doesn't truly exist, there is a disconnect that happens for anybody that is put in the position to market to this community. Thinking about renovating your home or just making a few changes? At East End Interior Demolition, any job can get it. Proprietor Kyle Russell has over 10 years of experience in the demolition industry and has all the tools needed to get the job done. Working clean, quickly, and efficiently. Kyle and his team provide a top-notch service to clients out here on the East End of Long Island and beyond. Whether you're renovating your kitchen, redoing your bathroom, or just adding on to your home, East End Interior Demolition are the guys to call. Find them at EastEndInteriorDemoLLC.com or on Instagram at EastEndInteriorDemo. There's a major, but but can I interject and just say oh, yeah. in, a, in a weird, not to say that everything you're saying is not correct because it absolutely is correct, but I think we underestimate these companies for the most part, the Ralph Lauren, the Balenciaga, the... J. Crew, you know, the other various brands on Main Street that have a lot of money and a lot of pull, the Warby Parkers, right? You can, they can afford to take a loss every year oh, absolutely. at these stores just to produce a headstone shop that shows their brand. So, so they can eat that and they can have it not, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't yes, matter to I'm them. not speaking about those companies. Right. I'm talking about the <clears throat> pop-ups. When you look at how many companies have come here Right, you're talking about people I'm that try to come out here to, oh, I can the make summer. money in the Hamptons. Yes, they come right. here for the summer, and God. then they go, oh, yeah, okay. we're going to be open I was going to say, I think other people just don't care. I think they yes. know they know what the market is. Absolutely. They just don't give a shit. And They're like, I'm not going to spend on it because we're going to make more money in the summer. That is thing. totally my point. They right. are aware of the market here. Yes. They know it. It's not a surprise to them when their store doesn't perform well across the board every day. They know that because they understand the market. And I would say out of the bigger companies that are here, as much as people don't like it, Ralph Lauren understands the landscape of the Hamptons. He really, his brand is so true He's also to- He's out here for a long time. Exactly. Now. And to say his brand is so true to this space and the energy that's here. So one of the things that I like to say when I talk about the Hamptons and people ask me about it, and I share with them that it's this beautiful preservationist culture. And the reason people are spending so much money 
to go there and to be there is because it's nature as pure and as beautiful and as untouched as possible. When we have stuff like light pollution law, like that's incredible. Light pollution law? You really care about light pollution? I'm from New York City. Tell me more about your light pollution. Right. We have okay. a bunch of ridiculous. If you don't turn that, some right. street lights on, okay, it's dark. All right, and this is a little dangerous. I, I get where you're going, but it's just a little well, there's dangerous. A lot of accidents here and a lot of deer crashes and dewees and shit. And we man. we could avoid like a couple. Maybe they don't uh, have to be big lights, but just like a little, <laughs> a little something that's on the, the road. The number one complaint of any visitor that's ever visited here is, "Holy shit, man! How do you there drive no around lights. at nighttime and see these streets? You don't. And I'm that's used the to point. it. I don't know. I've grown up but used you, to it. Look, so that's when you're, it, that's you grow up out here, you know the street. I can tell you exactly when Hog Creek, Sycamore. I'm saying like not even seeing a street lamp. That's normal to me. Like driving at night and like having to look for a street name with just your headlamps. That's normal. Like that's my your life. Headlamps and your so if, if I'm in bumfuck South Dakota sometime and I'm driving around, I'm in my comfort zone. Like there's no lights. It I'm honestly good. helps. <laughs> I did a cross country trip and I have to tell you driving in the dark out here. Oh yeah, I was prepared. Yeah. I knew what I was doing in Colorado. Yeah, sure. It's like, wow, it's dark, but I can see. Right. You got eyes out here in the, in the nature. But you're right. That is, you're totally right. That's what draws people. At the end of the day, that's what draws people out here, right? You come for the the serenity and the nature and the peace of what this, you know, calming landscape and little mom and yes. pop shops and things do. But I think where we've lost it is that over the years, we've kind of transitioned slowly. Obviously, we've transitioned if you want to talk about generational and decades and things like that, it all started with Carl Fisher developing the Hamptons and developing Montauk specifically and these different places to make it kind of this vacation-y resort. And that was long before Carl Fisher too, but just to mention a more modern society name. And there's plenty of others after him, you know, and there's William Benson and all these people. But the developers that came here, they saw it as like this landscape. And then they said, you know what? We can make this like the new Miami. We can make this the new this or that. So it's like you think about these things and they come in, they try to transform the landscape, but at the same time, they didn't know the locals that lived there at that time. They didn't know that market either. And they tried no. it and it didn't work either. Like the locals still navigated around it, but we were agrarian, agricultural for a very long time. It's, it's farmland. So it's it's really funny having this conversation because a few weeks ago, I went out for brunch with some of my friends in DC and- one of them, he is dope guy, really awesome guy. And he's like, so tell me about the Hamptons. Like, what's it like? And he's this excitement for the pizzazz and the uh, lamping in the Hamptons lifestyle. That he sees on TV and that Bravo see, and, yes, and, and that, TV and all this And not just like so. Bravo, but right. even like in rap, in the culture of America itself, of the elite goes here. The best of the yes. best go here. This is only exclusive. That exclusivity that's tied to the Hamptons, right? Right. So when I said to him, I was like, "I, it's the beach in the middle of the woods. Like, <laughs> it's There's not more what black I said to him. Like, yeah, I'm like, it's want? not what you think it is. And I, I know it's exciting to hear. And it's like, but it's not what you think it is. And that's what makes it so great. And he was like, well, y'all don't got like farms and stuff there. And I was like, no, that's all that's there. It's farms. It's literally people, everyday average people who live there that make up this awesome space. I was like, but they're preservationist in terms of they like things to be as true to this land as possible. And that is so unheard of in so many spaces. And it's so untouched in a lot of ways 
when you think about the things like the light pollution. So I shared with him, I'm like, no, it's not what you think it is. It's way better. And the reason people spend all the money they're spending is because it's not what you think it is. It's relaxing. It is not all that high profile. It's low key. It's chill. It's private. It's secluded. I was like, there's no cell phone service in areas on purpose. They know that it's dangerous. Montauk stretch, have fun, baby. See you when I get to Montauk. See yeah, you when I get no to Amicantic. Yeah, there's no bars. Good <laughs> luck on the bars on the stretch. <laughs> we've, we've been getting around just fine. The community has been, her point is that the community has been just fine out here for plenty of years, and it will continue to be just fine for plenty more. The exactly. people that come in and out are like a wave, right? It's the same analogy of like, this is Precisely. what we live in. But in the end, we'll all regulate back to the to back. It's to the, the natural ebb and flow. Right? Like you said, there's there's a board of people that are keeping it preservation. Now, what do you say in terms of history? You, you talk about preservation as culture. Now, what do we talk about when we talk about preservation as culture in terms of land? We were just talking about the so, jokes you're making about Shinnecock and the, and the billboard. All right, so like... And talking about that. Like, <laughs> all right, look, look we, we can talk about, about it. That. We can talk about and it. And we were so, talking about, like, hey, that's a part of this too, and that's a part is. of the history it's that needs tricky. to be spoken about as well. It's tricky when you talk about preservationist land, right? Because the, the reality of how we got to preservationist is it's a little rocky. Um, There's right. a little bit of murder. American history's a little light on this. There's a little, mur- a little bit of murder at first. Um, and, so, and you specialized in studying this, just so I we can did. be the precursor. I studied global affairs at George Mason Mason with a double concentration on the Middle East and Northern Africa and international development. So specifically places and how they got developed and what that looks like. And fun fact, when I was in high school here, I was on the junior town council board, East Hampton. What's up? So you wanted to, this was always something that interests you from a younger age. I love politics. I love politics. I love politics. Political landscapes and how it yes. all kind of worked out. It has been something that I have had a really strong interest in literally since sixth grade, probably before then, actually, come to think of it. My dad took me with him to go vote back in, I think it was Bill Clinton's his second run. That would probably be the first time that I have a memorable moment of having an interest in politics was going with my dad to the ballots. We went across the street to the library at the time and went to go vote. He took me with him. And it was really fun learning about what that process was. I am a total dweeb and and I have been a long time. That's what connected you to all of this that you do now and what you're involved with. So that's how I became who I am in the space of how I look at things and how I study them. It has always been intentional in terms of learning culture. So the reason that I picked global affairs has to do with learning culture and respecting what that culture is. My natural life and the way that my family was structured. So I grew up in multiple cultures in my own family. Whether I lived in New York City or I lived anywhere else, that was just going to be what it was. My stepmom is Irish and Scottish. My dad is Afro-Latino. My mom is black mixed with more black mixed with more black. Like so many different diasporas all in one family. So it was to me almost destiny, so to speak, in terms of communicating across cultures and learning what that communication looks like. And in order to learn what that communication looks like, studying those cultures. So being observational as well as inside of it. So noticing the broader things while I'm having smaller interactions as well. Mm. And that's really what drove 
me to do the things that I, that's what drives me to do the things that I do. It's the same thing with digital media, learning how people communicate digitally and how that drives the rest of society, how we engage with one another. Exactly. I studied trolling back in 2015 where it was so mind numbing, but I have so many screenshots of so many different social media interactions between strangers, ones that I had nothing to do with, but I was literally just researching and reading the ways that people talk to each other and the ways that they engaged in these polarizing subjects like politics. It is the first one. Yeah, you have this immense experience with digital strategy and marketing. And like you said, you've studied these groups of trolls and groups of people and, you know, dregs of the internet that are polarizing us all. And and, and you know what makes people tick and what brings people to websites and what brings traffic to certain things. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what kind of landscape we're living in in America today and what the society is kind of like? What's oh, going absolutely. On? You want to talk about algorithms? Let's, Let's talk. do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sure everybody would love to know because we all use it every day. So I'm sure. It would yes. Be so it is something that I've spent a lot of time studying is the ways at which we are given information and how we receive the information, and then also how that information is then processed. So in studying that with social media, it's been a lot of navigating different social media platforms and learning the ways that people engage on each platform, because each platform has its own energy. Each platform has its own set of engagement rules, so to speak. One of the things that I always talk about with Instagram is the start of Instagram. So if you go back to the beginning of Instagram, there was Instagram, Facebook, and Snap and Twitter. Snapchat was on its way, but it wasn't quite there yet. Right. So Facebook had seen a decline in their users' usage. Why? Because people moved from Facebook to Instagram. Because in the beginning, Instagram was so simple. You shared pictures. You shared cute things that you liked on your timeline in the form of a picture. It was in a chronological order. People hearted it or they commented. And that was it. There was nothing else to it. It was just a photographer's dream because it it takes away from the organic nature of the application. Right, because organic's bad these days. Uh, We live in the culture of instantaneism and having this has to happen now. It has to happen now, right now, right this second. We don't have time to waste. We don't have time to wait when the reality is you do have time to wait. You do. All of these platforms are designed. All of these platforms are designed, though, to occupy your time. And then people can play into the urgency of how much your time needs to be occupied and with what. So there is this idea with social media in particular of we can get everyone up in arms through, I call them a spin cycle. It's an emotional spin cycle where. Good way to put it. Wash, rinse, repeat. Here is a piece of news. Here is a headline. The headline might stir up some mm, feelings or. It's going to be so far off from what the article is about 
that you're confused as to how they got to the headline, but you clicked it. Right. Hey, clickbait. clickbait. Hey, clickbait. So that became an added layer of it, of how do we focus in on all these people that are actually using these tools? How do I market to them in this tool? How do I get them to spend more time on what it is that I want? So you have different strategies and you have different tactics uh, to get that strategy moving successfully and to see results. So trolling, for instance, is one of the easiest ways to go viral on the internet. Of course. Because the ease at which you can stir up an emotional frenzy online through social media, doesn't matter what platform you're on, in the everyday reality that's happening around you. How long can I get you entranced in scrolling? How long will you sit here? It's crazy And not toxic. actually use the things that are around you. Like, it's so funny because I study these spaces and I have for a long time, and it's ironic to me looking at the ways that we're moving forward into the future, right? Of like the metaverse and all of these different things. I'm like, all right, Neopets. Okay, Neopets. All right, guys. Like... <laughs> Let's like there is a part of it where we do have to acknowledge the air of ludicrousness that's there too, right? Because it's a little bit full ludicrous mode. Oh my gosh, it's a little it's a little questionable at times (laughs) how much we invest into things that are legitimately not real. And I mean legitimately not real at all. Not in the tangible sense of it was created. But like misinformation, things that are literally not real. It doesn't exist as true. It's all on the wall now. It's all crazy. But we operate as anything can be true. (laughs) And when you are operating from that space online, it's easy to validate that feeling because you can find material. And you can find others. Yes. And you can find others that you relate to. Exactly. With a group of people that are going to back the bullshit up with you. So now you got a bandwagon of bullshitters and here we go. We are going out to town (laughs) and I am going to tell everyone that they're wrong. We got the bullshit parade and we got everybody invited. And we're We're all here. And we're we're here. And so you have people who literally get online to be miserable. They get online to be miserable because they have nothing else to do and it's easy it is so unbelievably easy the energy that is there you see it all over social media and as you said it's toxic and we're toxic and just to say we're talking here just to be vividly clear we're talking about both sides of the aisle we're talking about left everybody middle yes we're talking everywhere everybody it's all this hodgepodge disaster about everyone he said, is she spinning. said, everyone is this, you're canceled that, everybody's his that. Exactly. You can't say, everyone, everyone is, it's everyone. all disaster. Everybody we, we can't is figure in, out how to talk. They're all in an emotional spin cycle. You're right, they are, and that was the best way you could put it. You're just absolutely. being fucking tossed around, smack left and right. You group don't know to group. It doesn't matter right. which group you're in. So part of really being able to step out of that space of like, oh, triggered there is a funny word right it is because there is an intentionality of going after someone's feelings and targeting them for feeling that way in a manner that weaponizes processing 
and experience. Mm. And when you do that, you're then putting yourself into a position where you then can't understand beyond where you currently stand. There's no sense of perspective shift there because there's a lack of foundational understanding that comes with a cognitive dissonance from a lot of people where they they want to be ignorant because the phrase ignorance is bliss, that's what it means. You don't want to pay attention to all the bad things that are happening. You don't, because then you kind of feel like you should maybe do something, like maybe you should do something different. Maybe you shouldn't let these things continue to happen. But if you can be ignorant to it and you can say, well, I didn't know, then it's not as bad, right? right. It feels a little bit less like, well, what was I supposed to do? I didn't know. So it allows you to shun from the accountability in that manner. It's about and accountability at the end of the day. Exactly. But if you can avoid it, because some people don't like accountability. Accountability can sometimes feel like confrontation when you haven't been in experiences in life where you have to speak for yourself in a confident manner, right? It's not necessarily it's that it's, it's true. conflict, but it's confidence of, I know I'm capable of this. I know I can do this. So you feel an ease. And sometimes people take that and they misunderstand it. And a lot of it has to do with our language. So going back to when we're online, right. Talking about a language. lot is lost in translation from behind a screen. So the irony in- Text to we, talk is crucial. The irony in having all of these places like social media, the whole point of it was to connect with your friends and to connect with your family and to connect with strangers and to be all together in this one big space. Ironically enough, in that, we're still- very disconnected from one another More because you still only engage in what you know. There is hundred percent. There is an in intentional. There's an intentional curation of your algorithm. Then that's based off of that circle. So you get shown the things that you have been known to like and engage with. Then there's the broad scope of it of what do you see from a media perspective, a full-blown media perspective, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox, Wall Street Journal, whoever it is, all of these different outlets then also have a tendency to play, and not even a tendency, they flat out play into emotional spin cycles. Sensationalism. Yeah. Since, and we call it sensationalism. Right. So here we are in a sensationalist journalism, loosely journalism right. space. And we're also in a space where we don't push foundational knowledge. We don't push critical thought here at all. It's, it, it, that has never been an American ideal. Well, love that it's a con it. I love that it's, it's a concept of, oh my God, they're not going to teach it. But the reality is they've never taught it. It's not something that you're going to learn because you would then go, Oh, Wait. I don't agree with that. <laughs> and if you say, oh, I don't agree with that, that changes the nature of how things work. So instead of allowing you to educate yourself and to learn more, what happens is you are fed information that doesn't matter. Bring in pop culture. Now let's bring in pop culture to social media. What was something that we didn't have before? Full-time 24-7 access to celebrities. 
it was always what you read in a magazine. It was very intentionally curated, similar to how social media is, but it was very different. The paparazzi was dying to take their picture. They were trying to invade them from left, right, anywhere. And like this lack of privacy was so exploited and so exacerbated and big that what happened when social media came, all of these celebrities and all of these people, these pillars of pop culture got to do it on their own. So you get to be more involved in their life. It feels more intimate than going to the store to pick up a magazine. You have your phone, it's free, and you can see it directly from the source's mouth. You feel like you know them because you're allowed to watch their life so intimately like this. From studying American culture in this way, what I've observed is that people have this disconnect from the present reality because of it. And it is so engaged in this superficiality. And then when it comes time to things like voting, you magically are being asked to fake think critically. Not a lot, because if you think a little too critically, then that's not fair because no candidate's perfect. And I'm not just speaking on like the presidential election, but literally just right, elections every, across the right. board. It could be local, which actually have a better effect on your life than presidential elections. Exactly. Do. But we, we don't, don't teach to. people. We don't story. teach people how. That's all pointing. You don't. Time. It's critical thinking. It's critical thinking. But you and know so, what it is? You don't learn that until you're in your freshman year of college. Until you pay for an education, so you're not learning if you about go critical to college, thinking. Really. If you go to college, and in the GER requirement, at least for New York State, it was or New Hampshire at the time that I was at, you had to take courses on critical thinking because it was something that really wasn't taught in high school. They, they gave you books to kind of decipher what critical thinking was and book reports and things and discussion groups and things like that. But they never flat out give you a class in critical thinking and said, hey, what? Morally, is this right or wrong? Let's talk about the specifics. Let's talk about the history. Let's talk about sourcing. Let's talk about critical thought and how we can judge things and judge others and judge moments in history and actually how historically- How do you be a good judge? Right. Like how, do, how can you think about this from a non-biased general perspective? It all ties into it. And I think that's a part of it is what you're saying is that that's absent in the general culture that we live in and reside in. Yes. So because that's absent, when you have social media, pop culture, and a general lack of critical thinking and critical thought happening across the board as a whole, I think a lot of times we have this very false view of distancing ourselves from people that don't agree with us and their education status or however you look at it. Absolutely. And you go, oh, well, that's not my problem. Those people are not like me. But We're never going to think the same way. Fuck it. And the the thought is? And the reality of that is that when you get to a space where you have no choice but to engage with this person, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to engage with them because you lack the ability to do so. And that's not their fault. That's your goddamn fault. Exactly. And that's the accountability. That's the accountability that people like to shun and they don't necessarily Mm. take the time Mm. to learn and to unlearn these certain things that have been then blanketly taught. So because we have a lack of critical thinking as the basis for where we're starting. You have media outlets that can come in and they can tell you whatever, whatever it is that they think you want to hear, that they know you want to hear and play into this emotional state because there's an emotional investment that you make 
into your beliefs. Part of the reason that it's really hard to change somebody's beliefs, they've invested their entire life worth of Sometimes. energy. Sometimes, no, right. Their entire life's worth of energy yeah. up until that point that into that into that belief. Right. Not even the moment, but the belief. So your belief, yes, your belief systems are your foundation. This is what you were raised on. This is what your parents taught you. This is what your environment taught you. And when someone questions your belief system, your whole world literally shakes because you're not expecting that someone could ever rattle you in this way. And then you have a fear-based emotional reaction that follows suit. And this is... It's something that happened. This is something. It is. It's there. Fear and ignorance. Fear and ignorance. So we populate all of our information into these tools on social media using fear. Everything is currently led with fear. There are some things where they lead with love, and I I love to see it because that's my favorite, and that's that's the kind of life that I live. I'm. These good news channel things are getting viral, which is good. I hope there's more of that. Yeah. But it's beyond good news. Right. Leading with love. Love is not always something that means it was a wholesome feeling. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really tricky to figure out how you teach somebody something and still be mindful of their feelings and their thoughts and their growth process. How mm. do you extend them grace in that process? So that's a big leading one. grace at, leading with love grace. is that you're extending grace you're extending right. patience and in that space you have to have room to do that so if you're leading with love and you're not necessarily looking for a change of heart but you're looking for somebody to listen and for somebody to hear something you're going to have a much more effective approach exactly If you're not going to say to someone, hey, everything you learned is a lie, you're dumb, you're a big-ass jackass, I don't know why you would ever, anyway, dummy. You just insulted that person's whole life and whole whole family, whole cultural roots and values. Let's be real. Are those not fighting words for anybody else? Like I'm, anybody, anybody. I don't care who you are. Right. I don't care who you are. I'm. Right. We gonna fight. You talking to me like that? We gonna square up. What's right. up? That's right. that's just the way that it is. Right. And I especially think, if you're from New York. <laughs> you know, we have a we got an energy to us. So I think there's a point where we have to be honest in our interactions as a society and as a whole. The individualism doesn't help. Because at the end of the day, you're still impacted and affected by the decision that this other group made. They didn't make- all in it together is what you're. Right? Yes. You're so understanding that, hey, it does not serve you to be emotionally riled up for no reason. I have a tendency to tell people, and especially with the previous administration. Don't fall for the collective, oh, you're stupid. Oh, this person's unreasonable. And this goes with both sides, the previous administration, the current administration. It takes a lot of mental stamina to make it through these news cycles and be relatively unaffected emotionally. Because the whole point it's of it- It's virtually impossible. Exactly. It's meant to make, it, it takes it's a meant lot to make of practice, a lot of a lot of mental stamina. A lot stamina. of critical thinking. So it all ties in together. So 
a lot of the reason that I love what I do and that I study these spaces so hard is because as you can hear, I nerd out in the, like on all of these little details and on all of the ways that this all connects to Extremely each other. Insightful. Yeah. It is so helpful. And so when you're studying communication and you're studying all these different avenues of communication and human development, communication is such a big part of human development. We have to know how to communicate with each other. If Absolutely. I don't know how to communicate with this person, I can't, I can't do the things that I need to do potentially if I'm in this space too. And there's an art to communicating without being a dick. You don't, you don't have to be a jerk. It is the easiest rule in life, but people get off on it because of the energy that's there, that toxic energy. It's, it's really, fueling. it's fueling, it's fueling and it's intoxicating. But that's dangerous. It's that's, intoxicating. Social media has given that dangerous power. And I think there needs to be accountability to that danger. Oh, absolutely. They're 100, they're 100% has to be. Social media and the danger of it and how we approach accountability or deflect accountability is there's an oversight on and there's a misstep. And a lot of times it's cognitive dissonance, which means intentional disbelief of a perfectly sensible piece of information, choosing to intentionally not believe it because of a cognitive dissonance is really different. So I think in our language and how we're communicating with each other, it's been really tricky with social media in a lot of ways because part of the draw to it is this ability to go live a fantasy and to go live your best life and to not necessarily be in the present day reality of what is in front of you. We have this fantasy life that we live online where you can be somebody you're not. You can be a whole different person. You can make your life look like it's the best thing since sliced bread. Nobody's living better than you. You have it all. Everything's figured out. Or you can engage online with content that is depressing, that is based in trauma, that is always sad, that is always going to stir you to be sad. There's either it's sad. about how you navigate your own path, so really. There's right? either sad, there's sadness or envy. Is what those are the two things that you see the most of content wise online. Things that people are like envy or inspiration. However, your personal human self is feeling that day on the spectrum. Envy or inspiration you or might sadness feel, or despair. That's really your your options. Generally, those are the those are the categories at which the content you're going to be consuming is based in. So I wrote a set of, I have a zine and it's called Digital Dash. And I used to share stories, really personal ones from my life, from friends who have given me the permission to share and show people from a observational perspective of what is happening in this space emotionally and how to process that and the time that it takes for processing your emotions and really respecting that time. Mm -hmm. And I eventually in 2020 decided to transition a little bit away from my own personal experiences and those of the people that I know and make it more of a broad encyclopedia, if you will, of 
information about how to navigate in emotional spaces and what your emotional awareness is and the state of your emions at that is time. something that's not just it's not being it's not it's, commonly taught right, and it's, it's not, not talked taught. about it's not talked about and right. I think part of it has to do with this taboo of the way that we approach our mental stamina, our mental stability, our mental equipness, our mental state as a whole and what that looks like. So because it's got this, oh, there must be something wrong with you attached to it or, oh, you're weird, you're like into meditating, people right. don't know. There's some stigma. There's, some, there's a lot of stigma. So I write to normalize that stigma. And so a lot of the earlier things are sharing emotional deep stories that I'm perfectly fine to share because as you can hear in my voice, I'm not in that space in my life. So I'm not necessarily going through it, but I've been there and I know that it's not easy. And in that, know that you have an ear and you have a sounding board. So a lot of it was for me to show people that you can do it. Mm. It's hard. It's not easy. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's easy because that's a lie. Mm. But you can do it if you want to. And if you don't, I don't blame you. I don't blame you if you don't because it's not easy. So what and it's not always about necessarily having things be easy in life. But there's a point where you reach a threshold of difficulties and the things that you are enduring can be too too much to bear and i think we have to be realistic in our understanding of extending that grace to people when they're in those spaces and how do we best help them and sometimes that's all you need is someone to ask you those questions because when you're in a space where you're going 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 you don't always take a step back to see it and when you're you're in the weeds so to speak it's really hard to go back and be like, wow, my life is not this permanent rain cloud of shit that keeps happening. There are some really nice sunshine moments, but I would be lying to you if I said that there lock are- Lock ourselves in negativity. We do lock ourselves in negativity, but there's also, reality is not sweet. It's not always sweet. It's not always easy. And you know that's what I was saying with love. It's not always easy. So what I- wrote about initially are just those experiences of when things were not necessarily the easiest and what that was like and how I felt. I share a little bit about what helped me to leave those spaces, but I'm honest in the sense of you just have to sit in them and then it, let it pass. But to swim upstream for no reason, just to make your way harder because intuitively you think that makes the most sense is a common mistake that we all make. And especially when it comes to dealing with our anxiety and the things that are making our lives a little bit more difficult to bear in our brains and how we approach it with ourselves. Right. So that is something that I initially started writing about. Then I will say it has since transitioned after 2020, it transitioned to sharing more on a broad level, how to make these observations and disconnect yourself from this emotional frenzied state is my ultimate goal in the reason that I started these kind of encyclopedia style 
guidebook magazine sections. So these ones are where can the, where can people so just to, so to lay that out on let, my let's website accessibility yeah let's lay this accessibility all out. they're on my website digital dash with two h's dot com and you'll see a section that says zine archives so there's where you can find all of the zines and it starts with it's digital dash two h's okay digital dash dot thank you thank you just reiterating for the for the folks here it starts with it's called Unpacking Caucasian Entitlement. It is intentionally designed to be that way because that is the first step. That's the first pillar. The, the Get literal, your feet wet right here. And it, that's the first part center. of where we go wrong in this, in this country and how we approach our relationship to communicating with Native Americans, with Black Americans, with Asian Americans, with... Americans everywhere, Americans from everywhere. We have this foundational misunderstanding that takes place that started with the way that we're taught a certain set of things in our language, because language is the key to your emotions. It all ties back into what you were saying in the beginning. You were saying you can't just shun people out for having a different view as you. You can't just push them out the door and say, hey, this is what it is, or, you know, your opinions or ideals or, or it doesn't matter. People are tied to that. This is a deep-rooted thing. You can't just shift 50% of America overnight and think they're going to come your way. We're talking about progress, progress that's taken hundreds of years to develop. It's hard when you grow up in a society like ours where the education system as a whole is one curriculum, right? It's one It's one base. It's one note. It's, hey, this is your set of textbooks that you buy for your school district. This is how you learn. This is what it is. Teachers get paid a certain salary, right? They get paid, you know, in varies by state. In New Hampshire, you get paid 50 grand a year to be a teacher after a bunch of years. In New York, you get paid over 100 grand. It's a lot of, like, there's a huge variation where you get paid and where your education is and all these different things. You think about it, we lack major linguistics, critical thinking, communicative skills that are necessary in society to form and function and cooperate and coexist with each other on a normal fucking level. That's exactly it. That's and perfectly we're not, we're summed up. We're not getting there because there's this barrier of these different things that are holding us back yep. from where our potential is as a country. There are all these distractions that are there that stop There's you no in your tracks. There's no trust either. It's not only it's it's not only the accountability as much as it is there's no trust. People don't trust corporations. People don't trust the government. People but don't why trust would you? this. They don't trust all these things. Give me give me some good reasons as to why you should. Right. But if your quality of life is not great, why would you trust the things around you? That's why you look at countries that have great qualities of life and their voter turnout is extremely high. My favorite country to use as an example is France, right? Because there's this un rivalry between Americans and French. Yeah, fuck and, French people. I mean, we could say that all day long, but at the end of the day, I'm going to tell you, they got that shit on lock. What they won't do is let their politicians come in and tell them how they're going to live. Absolutely not. They will flip cars in the street for a week if they have to. And that's the difference. Americans are so cute because we have this loving relationship with protesting and no follow through. What are you protesting on a Saturday 
or a Sunday in Washington, D.C., these people barely go to work as it is. They're rarely ever at the Capitol, but you pick the Saturday to go down there? You think they care? You're disrupting the lives of others. You're not disrupting the actual political playing field right now. You're not doing anything, but it feels like you are. Oh, it feels so good to go down there and to say, hey, I did this. Hey, I stood for that. And while that's great because you can see how many people stand for that, it's ineffective. And I'm speaking from a space of having attended many a protest, from having been in the space of really having my full heart be in these places mm. and wanting to see the change. But I have to recognize what's in front of me. Collectively, we're doing it all wrong. People are too afraid in this country to not go to work. Don't go to, don't go to work for three days. The bulk of America, this shit will turn off. We sat here and listened to them go, oh God, the economy is going to tank if people don't go into an office. We've been working remotely via COVID for, we're going on the third remote year now. Two full years into a pandemic in the third remote year. Make that make sense. We already decided that it actually still works. But if we're going to listen. Companies actually save billions of dollars not having offices. Not having offices <laughs> that they have to fill. And you they have. Saved, they but saved not even they saved. Billions. Not they saved. They made billions of right, dollars right. in a pandemic. In a global pandemic. Oh, yeah, billions of dollars were made. So it's important for us as Americans to recognize we're getting played. Is that why you're developing your zine and developing all the things you're doing is because you want to kind of change the mold of what you've seen out there and that's what this is? I want people to think. So if that's what that means, then yes. I want them to think for themselves. I want them to really evaluate and sit and say, this isn't my best interest. This is not in my best interest. And learn what their best interest is and that we can all achieve something big that we can all achieve something grand, that we can dream and dream big. And in that is that the dreams have gotten more far-fetched and fantasy-like for a lot of people than it once was, where it, this whole land is filled with opportunities. It is filled with opportunities. There is so much here. What do you see for the landscape of America? Okay, so in my fantasy life of what I think America should look like, there's this thought that we have the ability to connect with each other in our common strife, in our common uh, disgruntled and unsettled feeling of recognizing that currently there's not enough being done from the social perspective of right. the government and truly how are you managing our taxes because we'd be paying a lot of taxes and i'm just trying to understand sometimes where they're all going <laughs> and how we're in all this debt because damn your money management is poor 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 always been and then y'all got the nerve to tell little people that they have poor money management yeah these banks weren't looking right, so it's our high. fault it's our Look, fault we, these banks we were overbought not these houses so we, we oversent these kids to college we did all these things not yeah, even that yeah. nah these these big corporations that we've decided to protect right oh, they yeah. didn't have six months of money saved up um they were over here asking y'all for money with their hands out proud so Those explain P loans were so explain so for me i would really like for us to use these tools as a way to learn to communicate with each other, to then build 
a better relationship for our bargaining abilities and what we want from our politicians and what we want in these spaces that we're living in, whether it is your local election or it is a governational election or it is the presidential election. I just think it's really important for us to recognize where our common ground is. And that is my hope with creating these tools is for people to see first where we are. And that part is a little bit hard. Check I know. yourself. Check, check yourself. yourself. That's the first thing. Check yourself. You know, learn, learn to do a check-in with yourself. Uh, one of the things I put in... Am I acting crazy? Like, am I acting reckless? Like, am I acting... Am I... Not compassionate to my fellow Am I people? acting like, irrationally? That's the word. Thank you. Irrational. Is there a rationale Thank you. to my train of thinking right now? And if not, how do I get to one? Or is this a subject for me that I have to just chalk, right? Uh, something I like to say, and I've been saying it since undergrad, some things don't make sense, and it's because it's nonsense. And you can't make sense of nonsense. That is one of my favorite things to check in with myself on when I'm being overly analytical of something, of a situation, or I'm going back to something and I'm like, oh, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because it's nonsense. You can't make sense of nonsense. And if you keep trying, you're just going to be in the same spot, the same frenzy of trying to make it make sense. But to the landscape of everything and how to tie it back in, you're you're saying that that people as long as they can kind of develop this skill of critical thinking and develop this and use these tools and use the resources that are available, we can kind of navigate ourselves to fix us back on this course and hopefully project to a better. Oh, absolutely. Because again, Hey, Donald Trump, baby, anything's possible. Yes, I, I do. I do think that anything's possible. <laughs> Literally anything's so possible. It, it could be, Whether it could you like be that we get him, anything is possible. It anything could be that we get this. Possible, uh, so you better, shape up or put up or shut up because that's what it is those are the options <laughs> and that that's the reality of where we are so right. i think for people right now that's what i want them to leave with and to recognize is that hey we don't necessarily have to bicker with each other we don't have to speak to each other in this way and fun fact i actually don't even have to deal with you that's my favorite i will remove myself again if it it doesn't make sense. It's nonsense. I'm going to remove myself. What do I look like spending my precious time trying to make sense well, of thing. nonsense? We all have lives to live. What are we doing? Exactly. We're staring at screens eight hours a day, ruining it's a our waste. fucking lives when we it can be out doing things, waste. seeing nature, going to hang time with family, going to and spend learning, time with our fellow loved ones and people we like and friends. We don't do it. Learning more real life experiences by actually doing that's what and makes you engaging. Smarter. That's what makes you the smartest. That's what helps you to grow. That's why your grandma that you fucking underestimate for everything in your life, that's why she knows how to do fucking everything. That's why your parents, when you have a problem in your life, you call them because they know what to do. Or you call that aunt or you call that friend that's older because they know what to do because they've had life experience. And Sometimes, it comes with age. In age. When I say life experience comes with age, you can have a, a, a ton of experiences at a certain age. It is not restrictive to your age, but when I say age, I mean the time spent on this earth. How much mm. have you seen in your time spent on this earth? So when I say age, that's what I'm talking about because experiences continue as you grow. They don't stop. 
okay, you turned nine, now you're turning 10, now you're turning 11. And right. guess what? You were still living in all those right. times right. where you were nine, 10, 11, 12, and so on and so forth until your time is done. So recognizing, one, that we have a limited time here. We actually have no idea what that clock says. We don't know what it looks like, but it is limited. Right. And in the sense of where it's limitless is that there's so much you can do. You have so many different avenues to pick from. And if we can get ourselves to recognizing one common ground, one common space together as a society, you're asking humans to let go of a sin, so to speak, and a desire that's really enticing. Being greedy is enticing because you want more, 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 more. And that's that's a hard thing to ask people is to be virtuous and to not take more than what they need and to learn to be satiated and to be satisfied with what they have, even when what they have is a lot. So you're saying that hopefully with tools, resources, knowledge, information, the spreading of compassion, I think is the overall key word, I guess, because if you have compassion for someone, you're going to listen to them, right? You're going to have, you're going to have this compassion that you want to help them. You're going to be more willing to hear them out. Hear them out, hear their opinion. So really we, we're looking for compassion. Get back to bare bones and think about, we're all trying to get to the same place. We're all trying to feed our family. We're all trying to, at the end of the day, strive, succeed, be a better person, do better. And if you're not, like we said, you're, you're not a part of the norm. So you're just not a part of the equation we're working with. So you really, you know, it's what it is. At the end of the day, hold yourself accountable, be compassionate, share good values, speak up for yourself, be confident, and, and the rest will take care of itself. And society as a whole will kind of stay on its own correction. I don't think it, it's all just noise. It's all what we're being spoon-fed. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to, it's going to eventually level out and be fine and we're all going to be okay. And approach it as organizing your bedroom or your closet or your house, right? Compare it to that same concept of it is the messiest when you have to pull everything out and it's just in that state of disarray and you're like, oh my God, there's stuff everywhere. I can't escape this stuff. And then as you start to go through and you're like, oh, I don't need this. Oh, right. I, what's that? I never knew I even had that. I'm, I'm right. not using this. I can Filter. get rid of this. So when you start to filter through what you need and then you get it down to what's important and you get your space back into a state of calm and organization and fluidity and there's an order, there's a current chaos, but chaos and order are hand in hand. And I probably sound like Thanos a little bit, but no, it's but that's the truth. True. You know, chaos comes with order and order comes with chaos. So we're in the, we're in the steps and I think this is an opportunity for us to really make a huge leap forward in terms of our progression of humanity as a whole through the scope and lens of American politics and the makeup of America and what it looks like. Becoming common with one another. Commonality really is what we're trying to accomplish, right? You're, you're trying to pull both together two sides of spectrum it's commonality that's going to bring them together because it's at the very basic point if you have somebody that's from a very different background 
and a very different background, two very different people from very different places. But beyond that... They're only going to connect through commonality. They're only going to connect no. through little connections that they can make with each other that are similar, right? Yes, yes and no. Uh, beyond commonality, decency. I want people to be decent. I can be decent, and, try and to you make can yourself, be decent. And just be decent and try to make yourself more highly educated. Yeah, that's the way to do it. And you can highly do educated... That. Highly motivated and much better when you move through life that way. It's easier to navigate. Absolutely. I think you said it best. And you know what? We appreciate having you come on and, and talk about all this. And you're extremely knowledgeable and uh, well-versed in this. And, and you know, it, it's very in informative and insightful. And we appreciate you. Dash, it's fucking awesome. Oh, thanks know. for having me. Yeah. I loved it. This was awesome. I'm excited uh, to come back again. Yeah, absolutely. We'll definitely get you back in. Just to plug the socials one more time there, you got digital-dash.com, two H's on dash, digital-dash.com. And Instagram, same thing, digital-dash, two H's. That's You know me, where to find me. her. And uh, yeah, check everything out. I'll have some links to the information. And thanks for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks you. for having me. Cheers. See you later. This episode is also brought to you by Cousin Patty's Cookies in East Hampton. Hampton's local Patty Sales creates custom cookies for any occasion. Birthdays, weddings, engagements, baby showers, and more. There's a custom cookie with a fun design waiting for you. Make the party more memorable with delicious sweet treats your guests will think about on the car ride home. To place a custom order with Patty, check out her Instagram at Cousin Patty's Cookies or email Cousin Patty's Cookies at gmail.com.